Well, I'm sorry I'm a bit late. Uh, it is dead on 7, so. Uh, but I would like to have been here a little earlier. Uh, I didn't realize how foggy it was going to be on the mountain. Uh, I was at Redeemer earlier today, and it was foggy, but it looks like it's foggier. There's no fog hardly down in, uh, once you get downtown. And down in, uh, the mountain always seems to be a bit different in terms of its weather. So um, I'll pray, and then... Um, uh, I'll kind of give you an idea where we're going over the next uh, two months uh, to the end of March. And then tonight really is, uh, as we'll see, is a focus on the Roman Empire. Uh, dealing with uh, things like, we'll see how much time we have in terms of uh, material to go through. Uh, dealing with things like politics, uh, the kind of structure of the empire, um, the uh, economic situation, social context, uh, men and women's relationship, uh, religion. So it's a kind of broad overview. Um, we're going to do this in 75 minutes. So we go to, well, we'll go to, we'll do it in about 60 minutes. We'll go to about 8 o'clock. And if we need to, uh, we can have questions till 8.15. We'll be finished at 8.15. So if you have uh Commitments or whatever, uh, that's a, a guarantee. Um, I teach a whole course on what's called Roman Hellenism, which is the Greco-Roman culture of the Roman Empire. So 12 weeks, three hours a week, 36 hours. So we're boiling that down to an hour. So you can see it's just a very potted version. But let me pray, and then uh, we'll get going. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of this uh, day, for this uh, opportunity uh, to think together about the past. Uh, we thank you for the fact that we are part of a church that stretches way back into the New Testament times, that there have been men and women in every age who have sought to live for you, to love you, and to be faithful in passing on the faith. And we have received that faith, and we are heirs of a rich heritage. And we pray that our time together uh, in these next uh, number of weeks would be a blessing for us intellectually, uh, that our minds might be informed. But we also do pray that it would be uh, spiritually uh, encouraging, even challenging. And we do pray also that you might be glorified in our thoughts, our words, and we ask this for the sake of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, let me give you an idea where we're going, and then I'll give you uh, specifics in terms of what we're going to do uh, this evening. So today, I, in fact, I was going to do two lectures on the Roman Empire. I was going to focus on power and politics today. And then next week, I was going to focus on um, cultural things, cultural perspectives, religious things. But I'm going to roll all that next week and uh, today into one uh, evening. And so today we, we look at the whole big context in which the, uh, the early church uh, sought to be faithful. Um, when you study history, when you read history, you have to read it in context. Um, our lives are lived in a specific context. Canada at the beginning of the early 20, uh, the 21st century. Um, and your daily life consists of a host of things, not just simply 
religious things, uh, things that relate to scripture. You go and uh, you get your car washed, uh, you get your hair cut, uh, you buy clothes, you go to the grocery store, you do your job, uh, you interact with other people in a cultural context. And to understand who you are in a Christian sense, you've got to understand that context. And you really can't understand Christians in years gone by unless you see the context in which they're in. Uh, it's been rightly said that the, fa- the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. And that's true of Christians, too. You read, you read about Christians in the past, like, like, how on earth could they ever think that? Um, so uh, at Redeemer this week, we're, in one of my courses, we're looking at uh, the Reformation and Calvin. And uh, when you read about Calvin, there's a lot, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I understand where he's coming from. We, we read his conversion story. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot that the students and I can chime in on. We haven't yet got to, we'll get to this next week, about uh, his interaction with Michael Cervetus, who was arrested for denying the Trinity, and Calvin was brought as a chief witness. Is he a heretic? And Calvin said, yes, uh, he's a heretic. He's, he's denied the faith. Well, they passed the death sentence on him, and they were going to burn him. Calvin pled with them not to release him, but pled with them to simply chop his head off quickly, get it over with quickly. But they burned him. And uh, numerous Protestant leaders around Europe wrote to Calvin and said, way to go, you got rid of that guy. We would have done the same if we caught him. And you're, from at my point of view, I'm not sure where all of you are coming from. I hope you're coming from my point of view, but maybe not. From my point of view, I'm, that's horrifying to me. As one of the men in, Cal- in Geneva said to Calvin, a uh, man named Sebastian Castellio, you did not destroy heresy. You killed a man. And uh, Calvin wouldn't truck that. He kicked the guy out. At least he didn't kill him. <laughs> and... Um, he didn't, Calvin had no qualms because he was dealing with a whole different view of church and state relations than we would hold as Baptists. A very, very different view. But also Baptists who live in a liberal democracy, a pluralist environment. Intellectually, I'm not committed to pluralism, but I, it works. And I'm very thankful that we're, we don't have a... <laughs> a pit out here that we're burning heretics, right? I'm very thankful that we don't have that. And um, so to understand our Christian forebears, you have to understand their context. Calvin's a product of the Middle Ages in that. He's still a medieval man. He's not a modern man. He's still thinking that the state is designed to protect the church, etc., so that, all of that is reason why we're going to spend some time thinking about, in this, uh, in this uh, first night, uh, about the larger context in which the early Christians gave their witness. Next week, what I want to do is I want to look at uh, an early Christian, a Roman Christian, and it's Priscilla. So I'm, I'm in the Bible, and it'll be kind of a New Testament study. She's referred to about oh, half a dozen, seven or eight times. And uh, she has a lot, I think she has a number of things that she can teach us as being a Christian in a pagan, pluralistic context. And then from there, we look at persecution. And we'll do the first hundred years of the church after the apostolic era, 
The apostolic era ends with the book of Revelation, uh, roughly the 90s AD. And the 100 years after that, we're going to begin with a man named Pliny. He's a Roman governor. Uh, I like Pliny. I've read his letters. He's a really nice guy. Great family man. Loves his wife. He's got some slaves. He's great with his slaves. I'm not in agreement with slavery, but he's great with his slaves. Great with friends, but he executed Christians. And um, he's got a letter uh, in which he writes to the emperor wanting to know what to do with Christians, well, ex-Christians. He knows exactly what to do with Christians because if, you, if, he, if the Roman governor says to a Christian, you need to sacrifice to the gods, and he said, I'd ask them once, and they'd say no. Then I asked them a second time and threatened them with capital punishment. If they persisted, I asked them a third time. If they persisted again, he would then chop their heads off because they were refusing a direct command of a Roman governor. So whatever other crimes they had committed, and in fact, he admits, I, I don't think he did any other crimes, but they refused to follow the commands of a Roman governor. They're guilty of, capital, of a capital offense. Uh, if you get pulled over as you're going home for speeding, and I don't think you'll be speeding in the fog out there, and a policeman uh, asks you for your license, and you tell him, <laughs> you know, I don't think I'm going to give you my license. Uh, do you have insurance? No, none of your business. I remember reading uh, some guy in Virginia said, when do you get pulled over by the police? They have no right. They do not have a right to ask you about whether or not you've got insurance or even ask you for your license. I think maybe things are different in Virginia. <laughs> but if, you get, if that happens to you, you, you might try this. Not, <laughs> I wouldn't, but you might want to try it. Just see what happens if you just tell the police officer, no, I'm not giving you my license and I'm not going to show you my insurance. You will now have, you've now committed another crime, right? Whatever your, maybe your taillights were out, maybe you were speeding, whatever. You're now guilty of another crime. Well, that's the context in which Pliny executes these Christians. But he's got some Christians, well, they're ex-Christians, because they said, yeah, we were Christians 10 years ago, but we've given it up. And Pliny doesn't know what to do with them. And uh, so he writes to the emperor, and the emperor writes back. So that's where we'll begin in two weeks. And then we look at uh, why persecution happened. And we'll end with a woman, a 22-year-old woman named Perpetua, uh, who was martyred. She had just had a baby. She actually had a baby in prison. And she was martyred. And she, she kept a diary. Uh, she was upper class, uh, very well educated. She could speak and write in Greek and Latin. Her father, she was her father's favorite daughter. And uh, we'll read uh, some of the uh, account of her execution, uh, her imprisonment, and then uh, a little bit of her execution. It's a very uh, poignant account because her father turns up at her trial and he's absolutely devastated that his daughter will not just throw a little incense on a fire for the emperor and offer a prayer to him. And he just can't understand her. And it's, 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 really, it's really, even at this distance, it's heartbreaking. Uh, one of my PhD students uh, got a scholarship uh, just this past two weeks to go to Tunisia. And she went to, you can still see the amphitheater where Perpetua was martyred. And even the prison cell where she was kept. And that was one of the highlights for her. 
Uh, then we want to look at, so I'm really uh, just giving you an, a kind of a load, uh, uh, an overview here. Uh, we want to look at a man named Justin Martyr. He too gets martyred. But we're going to look at uh, uh, the development of what we call apologetics, uh, defending the faith. Justin Martyr is really the first apologist. And um, he has a woman come and comes, comes to him, upper class woman, who's become a Christian. And her and her husband, before she became a Christian, used to go on sex junkets. Uh, they were into all kinds of weird sex. And now she gets converted, and she won't do it anymore. And she comes, and he denounces her to the authorities, denounces his own wife to the authorities, and she's got a year to put her house in order before she's going to have to go to trial. And she asks Justin Martyr, could you defend me? And he writes a little tract to defend her. And, and that gives him the idea, maybe this is a good, maybe I should write a book on this. Why Christians, it's, the, it's good for the empire to have Christians. And so he writes a larger book, and we'll look at that. And then we want to look at actually another early Christian apologetic uh, work called the Letter to Diognetus. And then we want to sh kind of shift gears. We want to move from the way the church was attacked from without to the way the church is attacked from within. There's, there's two areas, right, where the church gets attacked. Um, uh, like it or not, we live, uh, we're in a militant context. The church gets attacked from without. And then it gets attacked from within. And we want to think about uh, heresy. And the earliest heresy is a thing called Gnosticism. So it's, uh, it denies the goodness of the material realm, denies the resurrection of Christ, denies the incarnation. And uh, we'll spend a whole night on Gnosticism, looking at it. They write their own scriptures, uh, things like the Gospel of Thomas, and so on, and we want to think about the, the development of the New Testament canon. Why do we have the books in the New Testament? Which, which ones uh, did the early church recognize? Uh, why did they recognize uh, these certain books and so on? And then we want to look at an early Christian author, Irenaeus, who was uh, born in what is now modern Turkey, a uh, place called now Izmir, uh, Smyrna, and uh, spent some time in Rome and then ends up in the Rhone Valley in Lyon where uh, the Roman uh, city of Lugdunum. And he's a missionary bishop there, and he writes a major response to, uh, to this heresy. And then we're going to spend some time looking at another North African. Uh, it's amazing to think that the, in the early church, running from roughly 100 to about uh, 600, some of the greatest Christian leaders and thinkers and authors were North Africans. Um, Cyril of Alexandria and Athanasius and Augustine. We don't get to any of those in this uh, uh, run. Uh, but we're going to look at Tertullian, who was an African in Carthage, what is now Tunis. And we're going to look at him, his life, and then his defense of the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, he's a bit of a weird guy in some areas. Um, I like him. I'm not sure I'd want to be in the same church as him. He's, a really, he's kind of a prickly guy. Um, very black and white on a number of issues, uh, no in-betweens. Uh, you're either with them or against them on a number of areas where we would, mm, you know, we can see it two ways on that. Well, no, not with Tertullian. Uh, but he's the first major theologian to write in Latin. And then uh, we want to look at another North African named Cyprian. And Cyprian's a very important figure. 
And uh, his leadership through two events, one of them would be very timely, uh, what's known as the Plague of Cyprian. It's, a, it's a, probably a variant of the bubonic plague. It comes out of Ethiopia in the uh, th- third century, ravages the Roman Empire for about 20 years. Two Roman emperors die of it. And uh, we see how Cyprian addresses that. But the other thing I want to look at is the way Cyprian responds to persecution. And um, we'll wait till we get there. But the last few years have been difficult years, I think, for Christian leaders on a number of levels. And one of them has been how to, how to respond to government mandates and uh, masking, et cetera, et cetera, social distancing. And I don't think Christian leaders in southern Ontario have always done well. There have been some for whom this has become a, 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 an area of uh, fellowship or disfellowshipping, and they've taken hard lines. And I just thought, I remember when it started happening, I thought, these guys should go back and read Cyprian, how he dealt with different responses to persecution and so on. But you'll need to wait till we get to that at the end of the the. 11 or 12 weeks. So we're basically doing 200 years in 12 weeks from 100 roughly to 300. But tonight, uh, the Roman Empire. Um, A number of years ago, um, I was invited by a pastor in southern Ontario. I won't name the place. And he said, we'd like you to come up and do a Saturday. I have done a fair amount of this over the years. Do a Saturday, do maybe three lectures in church history. Um, what would you suggest we look at? So I wrote back to him and said, well, why don't I do one on Perpetua, one on Cyprian, so I've already mentioned who these people are, and one on Augustine. So he chatted with the elders in the church, and then he go back to me and said, well, uh, I, I don't think those three lectures are going to work. You know, uh, The one guy, he's a Catholic, right? Augustine. And the other two, well, we've never heard of them. Uh, could you do something, you know, Protestants or evangelicals? And I thought to myself, you know, in fact, you haven't heard of them. might be a good reason why you should have a lecture on them. And Augustine's not a Catholic. He isn't. I mean, he didn't believe in papal supremacy. He did believe in the mass. He, he did, he's got some things that will work in the Catholicism, yeah, but he's not a Catholic. I mean, anyway, I didn't argue with him. And, uh, but it, it revealed to me that uh, we as evangelicals are very comfortable with the Reformation and onwards. We're not comfortable with what happened before. And I have sometimes listened to to, uh, evangelical teachers or preachers, and I sometimes get the impression that, like, between John of Revelation and Luther, like, there was nothing. Like, it just, you know, the whole church just dropped off the edge of the precipice, and it was just a complete disaster, and especially the Middle Ages. I mean, that's just a write-off. And... uh, you think, okay, what was the Holy Spirit doing in 1,500 years? And some of it has got to do with the fact that we're very Western-oriented, and we fail to remember that the church is larger. Than, I'm, my focus is going to be the West, Roman Empire. Well, that world of the Roman Empire. So, uh, you know, the Europe and uh, the bit of the Middle East and Africa, uh, North Africa. But the church was expanding beyond the Roman Empire, uh, into uh, what is now Persia and Afghanistan and the Indian subcontinent and China, and especially down into Ethiopia and Sudan, the Aksumite uh, church. 
And we've forgotten all about that. And the Aksumite uh, church was sending missionaries into Saudi Arabia before the emergence of Islam uh, in the 500s. And we've kind of, we know nothing about that. Even historians like myself, I, when I was trained, nobody trained me about any of that. All I learned was Europe and the Mediterranean Roman world. And I don't remember anybody telling me about the Aksumite church or what is known as the Church of the East. You know, somebody like Timothy of Baghdad, who was a bishop who was sending missionary bishops to Mongolia in the 800s. Never mentioned. And I've had to learn about these things over the years. So, um, <clears throat> was God active? Of course he was. Uh, Jesus said, you know, Matthew 16, uh, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And he didn't stop building his church for 1,500 years, right? You know, it didn't stop at the year 100, and then 1,500 years later, he's got Luther. Like, there is work in between. Now, it's not always the healthiest, but God is active. And we want to, that's why we want to see something of that activity in these first couple of hundred years. And by the end of it, if somebody asks you, so who is Perpetua? Never heard of her, they, they tell you. You'll be able to say, yeah, it was this woman. And you'll be able to say a little bit about her, and Cyprian, and and so on. So the Roman world then, <clears throat> let me talk a little bit beginning at uh, its geographical extent. Uh, the Roman Empire stretched from Hadrian's Wall, which is in northern England, just south of the border of Scotland and England. The Romans did go into Scotland. Uh, there was a battle around the 80s AD where uh, up near Inverness, and uh, the Romans won that battle, at least they, according to their records. <laughs> we, don't have, we don't have the records of the Scots. Uh, the Romans, the, by the way, sometimes the, when the winners write history, it's not exactly the fact, factual. There was a great, there's a great, uh, I forget the battle, it's uh, the battle between the Hittites and the Egyptians, and it happened around like 1100 B.C., and uh, people who studied the ancient Near East uh, assumed that the Egyptians won the battle because that's what they put on their hieroglyphs and whatever. And then they discovered a, a library of Hittite records and they were able to decipher them. They found out the Hittites, well, at least they said they won the battle. And uh, I forget the name of it. It's a very important battle that stopped Egyptian uh, moving north into, the, into what is now Israel. Anyway, so sometimes, you know... Uh, uh, the records of what we, we're told, there, there, might, there might be another story. But the Romans appear to have won that battle. But they didn't stay in Scotland. They built a line of forts running from Glasgow all the way up to uh, Inverness, running up uh, through Fort William, if you know that area of Scotland. And, uh, but they abandoned them pretty quickly. And by the early 100s, they build this a line of forts, uh, what we call Hadrian's Wall. If you ever go to Hadrian's Wall, uh, my wife and I have been, and <laughs> it's like this. And you're looking at it like, yeah, okay. But it was 16 feet high with a moat in front of it of about 16 feet. And uh, it was pretty impenetrable. And it ran across the narrowest part of England, and um, <clears throat> the Romans would maintain that wall uh, down to the year 406 when they would abandon it. 
And once they abandoned it, you know, people would use bricks from it for their buildings. Their archaeologists being able to determine, you know, this church used bricks from Adrian's wall and whatever. I mean, it's just it's a whole huge pile of bricks and stone just sitting out there on the moors, right? Nobody keeping it. And it's yours for the taking. So it's not surprising over, you know, a couple of thousand, 1,500 years, it's kind of diminished in size, people taking them. Um, from Hadrian's Wall all the way down to the Sahara, all of that is Rome. From the Straits of Gibraltar, which is right there, Spain and Africa, North Africa, where you enter into the Atlantic, all that for, all the way over to Babylon. At one point in southern Iraq was Rome's. Uh, their barriers, Hadrian's Wall in Europe, uh, the Rhine River flowing out of the, uh, Switzerland, uh, through Basel, down into the German plain, and issuing uh, into, uh, into Holland, then into the North Sea. Uh, that was the barrier. Um, I've been down the Rhine. Again, I've looked at it, and I, <laughs> it doesn't look that wide. I think it's diminished over the years. Um, and there are, of course, now bridges. There were no bridges then. So the barbarians, as the Romans called them, the Romans called anybody a barbarian who didn't speak Latin properly. Um, the barbarians couldn't get across easily unless they had boats. And then they'd have to bring horses on boats, and it's just all complex. And so it was a fairly secure border until one winter in 406, 407, when it froze. And it stayed frozen all winter. And 200,000 Germanic warriors crossed that, that river, and they would never be driven out. The other big river was the Danube. And you can do these uh, boat trips, right? If you ever have the opportunity, the boat, they're fabulous uh, to do a trip down the Rhine. And then you could, they've, they've got locks now that navigate and take you onto the Danube. And you can go the Danube from Vienna all the way to the Black Sea. And that was the other barrier that the Romans used, a natural barrier. The only part north of the Danube they occupied was, Roman, uh, was Dacia, what we now call Romania. And they were there for 200 years. And they Romanized the culture so deeply that Romanian, the language, is a Romance language, like French, like Italian. When you hear Romanian, it can even sound that way, some Romanians. Uh, it's interesting, they were 400 years in England, what we call England now, but our language is Germanic. It's not a Latin, it, it has a lot in Latin words, but it's, it's not a Romance language like French, Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, etc. So that's interesting. That must mean then the the level of Romanization in England was not as extensive in those 400 years as their, their level of Romanization in what is now Romania. Now, when you get to the Middle East, it's problematic <clears throat> because they, they had some forts. A place called Edessa was a major fort. Samosata was a major fort. These are old Roman names. Uh, but a lot of that is de desert, and the boundaries were always shifting between the Romans and the Persians, and the Persian Empire went through a number of different uh, 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 kind of forms. There were the Sassanids, the Sasanians, whatever, whatever the name, but they're basically the, what is now Iran, uh, the Persians. And they were Rome's great enemy. And uh, there was a significant amount of war that went on there for the best part of probably five, six hundred years. And uh, eventually it would weaken the Roman Empire in the Eastern Mediterranean so significantly 
that when Islam comes out of the Saudi Peninsula, it's facing two enemies, the Roman Empire in the east and the, uh, what's called the Byzantine Empire by that point, and the Persians who are militarily deeply weakened. They've basically spent 300 years in war, usually, usually cold war, sometimes hot, but it's, it's, it's seriously undermined them militarily. That's a huge expense, 70 million people, 70 to 80 million people, one-fifth of the world's population, multicultural. Most people living in the Roman Empire were bilingual, not like most Canadians, right? Most Canadians, like most North Americans, are monoglots, right? Doesn't sound good. <laughs> Just means you speak one language. Not like Europeans. I remember when we did the uh, boat tour with the, uh, down the Rhine, our guides were Dutch, and their English was impeccable. And I, obviously they were Dutch. I remember being in a bookstore, the book, a bookstore next to uh, the uh, Cathedral of St. Uh, Peter in um, Geneva, where Calvin was. And uh, one of the guides was there speaking English. Then she switches to French. And then somebody must have approached her in German. She switches to German. And it's, from what I can tell anyway, pretty impeccable. And I, I remember her telling me, you know, I asked her how many languages she spoke. Well, she had those she had Dutch, English, French, German, and Italian. And that's, that's very typical of parts of Europe. It's also not Britain. By the way, Britain is monoglots. <laughs> uh, but it's also typical of the Roman Empire. So the Apostle Paul is trilingual easily. He Greek speaks Greek. That's probably his mother tongue because he's born in Tarsus, which is a Greek city, uh, which is now in modern Turkey. Uh, his parents take him as a young boy to Jerusalem where he would have learned Aramaic, the, the language of the street. And in the synagogue, it's Hebrew. So he's definitely got Greek, Aramaic, Hebrew, and I suspect probably some Latin. Our Lord is trilingual, easily, in terms of his humanity. He'd have to have Aramaic as his mother tongue, which is a cousin language of Hebrew, Hebrew for the synagogue, and whenever our Lord speaks to a Roman or a Greek, it's in Greek. Uh, the Romans or the Greeks despised Hebrew and Aramaic. They were barbaric languages. They're guttural, right? They've got guttural sounds. Roman, Latin doesn't have any guttural sounds, really, and Greek has one, the, the, the first uh, uh, letter of uh, Christ's name, Christos. That's the guttural, but by and large, the, when the Romans and uh, Greeks heard Jews speaking, it was horrifying. It's barbaric. And they're not going to be learning that language. So Christ would have had to speak to Romans and Greeks, to, to Pilate. When he's having that interchange with Pilate, it's almost definitely in Greek. And that's a standard. So you've got this massive empire that most people are bilingual or trilingual or quadrilingual. I remember uh, recently being in, a, in uh, our bank, and the man that I was uh, speaking to, he was uh, from India, southern India, near Goa. And uh, my, our daughter-in-law is uh, Punjabi, and my brother-in-law is uh, from Delhi. So I engaged him a little bit. I don't know much about India. And uh, found out he could speak, obviously, uh, he's got English fluently. And <clears throat> he's got Hindi, Urdu, uh, Punjabi, I think Marathi. And you're just sitting there thinking, I've, I've got English. <laughs> but it's a very different world. And that, but that's the Roman world. You have to see it as a multilingual, which also means a multicultural world. 
And uh, uh, the cities, there were large urban centers um, strung out mostly around the Mediterranean. So you've got 70 million people, but you've got cities like Rome, which is over a million people. Alexandria, probably half to three-quarters of a million. Rome was a million people living in an area, very dense population, denser than uh, Calcutta or Mexico City. A million people, think, I assume you know Toronto. <clears throat> so think of the Don Valley Parkway, from the Don Valley to Spadina, and Bloor Street to the Bay. That's the size of ancient Rome, a million people in there. It is really dense. Uh, most of Rome, this will be typical of a lot of these large urban centers, Alexandria, Ephesus, um, Athens to a degree, Carthage, uh, Corinth. Uh, most of these people are living in high-rise apartment buildings made out of wood. Three, four-story apartment buildings jammed up next to each other. Very little privacy. Uh, the only people that had privacy were the wealthy. Uh, how many wealthy in the Roman Empire? About 2%. Stupendously wealthy. Uh, owning estates in Italy with 250,000 head of cattle. The whole of Egypt belonged to the emperor. Augustus Caesar, once he had conquered it, after the whole Mark Antony, Cleopatra stuff, uh, once he conquered it, it became his personal, his personal domain. Uh, finances, taxes, et cetera, et cetera, would, would come to him from it. So they're 2% stupendously wealthy. Poor, and that differs. Uh, I mean, these are rough statistics. It might have been 3%, but a very sliver, very small sliver. 600 to 700 families ran the Roman Empire. We know, we know the names of many of these families. We can do uh, timeline, genealogies, biographies of many of them because of the various amount of literature we've got. Whenever you read Greek and Roman literature, well, Roman literature, it's that 2% that are normally speaking. So when, you know, I don't know if any of you have taken a course in Roman history or classics, you're basically seeing it through the eyes of the very, very wealthy, not the poor. The poor can't write, the poor can't write and they can't read. Only in the church. Uh, 2% very wealthy. How many poor? Easily 80%. How many of those slaves? Uh, over the years that I've studied this, that there's been debates about that. Uh, when I first started studying it, probably... I've, I've always loved this world. So my earliest memories of reading books when I was seven or eight years old, so this is now 60 years ago, are the Roman world. And uh, once I had gotten in my teens reading about slavery, the arguments were about 50% of the empire were slaves. I think that's far too many. But easily 20 to 25%. One out of every four or five people you met in the street was a slave. Which meant they're not a person. They have no rights. If you're a master and you're a slave, you kill them, you can't be put on trial for murder. They're not a person. When Cato the Elder, around 200, is writing to his nephew about, okay, what do you do? He's a farmer. I remember my daughter uh, did a classics degree at McMaster, and there was one professor, his specialty was Cato the Elder's book on agriculture. I mean, boring as all get out. I mean, seriously. 
And my daughter thought she'd take it for the Latin, and she said, man, I was bored stiff, you know, about these you know, to, you know, stories about farm implements and what to, how to, how to uh, cut a furrow in the ground and on and on and on. Well, anyway, in this book on agriculture, uh, Cato the Elder is telling his nephew, when you inherit a farm, what do you do? Well, first thing you get rid of, get rid of old animals. You know, old sheep, old cows, just butcher them and get rid of them. And he says that, get rid of old animals, and then something, old tools, don't want old tools around, you know, rusty, just junk them. Right in the middle is old slaves. And how would he do that? He'd send them to the salt mines. That'd finish them off in a few weeks, a few months. And that little line is a window into the mindset of many of the upper class Romans. Slaves are not people. So, inevitably this happened where you had a, ma a, ma a master who sexually abused his slaves. He could have sex with a female slave. That's not adultery. It's not a person. As far as he's concerned, not in the eyes of God, but as far as he's concerned, he's faithful to his marriage vows. No problem. But it's a, it's a major problem, as you, as you can imagine. All, these are human beings being abused. Now, obviously, there were good masters. Pliny. Pliny's, Pliny's, you read through his letters. He's, he's very considerate of his slaves. In fact, uh, he gave a number of them his freedom, their freedom. But still, as an institution, it's horrifying. Um, so, 25% slaves, probably 80% poor. Middle class, then, is about 8 to 18%. And uh, that's a problem. That's one of the reasons why you don't have any movements towards democracy in the ancient world. Well, you'd, among the Greeks, you, you did have it, but it failed. Every Greek political thinker from Plato onwards knows democracy leads to anarchy. You don't want to give people a voice in government. It'll be chaos. And uh, from that point on, probably you probably have to go all the way down to uh, Italy in the early Middle Ages with small Italian city-states that are republics before you get even the glimmers of democracy again. Even Christian leaders, now we won't be talking about this man, Eusebius of Caesarea uh, could argue, well, there are three forms of government. <clears throat> there is monarchy, there is aristocracy, and then there's democracy. Monarchy is the best. And if you're a Christian, one God, one king. Makes a lot of sense, right? Democracy, it's just a mess. Absolute chaos. Aristocracy, the rule by a few, well, not too bad. And uh, he is a fervent, he's fervently committed to the idea of a monarchy. And it's not our monarchy, right? I'm a very committed monarchist. And I'm very thankful that Charles seems to be taking his responsibilities seriously. I won't get into all that. I mean, I, I'm sure there might be different opinions here. Uh, I do teach in the States. In the States, they do have very different opinions. I get myself sometimes into trouble when I'm teaching through the American Revolution period. And I suggest that, you know, maybe that wasn't a good idea. You know, maybe you should have stayed with, with us. <laughs> they, they, they take it in stride. And, I'm not, not, I'm not actually joking. I think they would have been better off if... Anyway, that's all off to the side. Uh, 
Our monarchy is completely different. I mean, I think it's good to have the head of state, uh, our, a queen, and, but it's a constitutional monarchy. The real power is in the hands of parliament, right? That's not this world. Even Christians then had no use for democracy. And uh, part of that's got to do with the middle class. Part of it's got to do with political theory. Uh, democracy was, had been tried by the Greeks. And it's amazing what they did. Uh, the Greek, when the Greeks would, uh, in Athens, they'd have all the adult males over the age of 18 were eligible to come and debate every major subject. And when they had a big issue to make, like, should we go to war with Sparta, which they did, you'd get 20,000 20, men would turn out. And everybody had an equal opportunity to say their piece. No political parties. It was direct democracy in a way which we don't experience today. But it, it failed. The Athenians lost that war, and the Spartans won it. And uh, Plato came after it, and he thought, you know, democracy's Stupid. We should have had a, just a few men running the show, wise philosophers running the show. It all would have been well. So this is not a democratic world. It's a military dictatorship. And all the bad things that go along with that. Uh, if, the, if the emperor was a good emperor, it was fabulous in many ways. Uh, he, he ensured protection. He ensured what was called the Pax Romana, peace. Between 96 AD and 180 AD, about 90 years, there is a Pax Romana in the whole Mediterranean world. Uh, there's a great Jewish story where uh, the rabbis uh, would tell this story. On the Day of Judgment, the Roman Empire, in the form of her emperors, is arraigned before God. And God asks the Roman Empire in the emperors, uh, why did you conquer all this territory? And the Roman emperors say, so that the Jews could have peace to study the Torah. <laughs> and the, the, the Jews told this. This is a rabbinic story. Even the Jews who hated the Roman dictatorship recognized the Romans gave us this tremendous peace. Of course, God will throw it out. No, no. It was out of your own greed and desire for domination. Just get out of here. You're all going to hell. And uh, he won't believe them. But it's a fascinating story because even the Jews have to admit yeah, the, when the Romans did it well, they really did it well. But then when they didn't do it well, <clears throat> so you've got Caligula, um, four years emperor, 37 to 41, complete nutcase. Uh, he doesn't like the Roman Senate, which is the old Roman families that had run the old Roman Republic. And to show his contempt for them, he made his horse a senator. This is what I think of you. Brings his horse in. I now duly constitute you, uh, whatever his horse was called, a senator in the Roman Senate. Uh, he lasted four years before the army said, enough's enough, and they bumped him off. Um, or Nero, or Domitian, or Domitian. Whenever you came into Domitian's presence, you had to address him as Dominus et Deus, Lord and God. And uh, even his wife got fed up with him and hired his barber to slit his throat when she was, <laughs> he was shaving him. <laughs> By the way, what, if you read about the Roman emperors, it, it kind of cures you of griping about our political rulers. You know, I, I'm, I don't know when, you know, when you, 
I'm not trying to be mean here. When you read some Christians saying, you know, we're living under a tyranny. Like, uh, okay, why don't you read about, you know, Domitian who, you know, he had secret service agents or secret police hiding in the toilets. So if he hurt you talking to someone, um, um, even a whisper of rebellion, you'd be hauled in and executed. Let alone people like Putin and Assad in Syria and on and on and on. Anyway, so... <clears throat> Rome's a military dictatorship ruled by a very small elite, very small middle class. The middle class are vital to the gospel. The poor, the poor don't have anywhere. The, the, the early church is, is uh, it, uh, it doesn't have churches. It doesn't have a building like this, right? They can't meet in the synagogues because the Jews kicked them out pretty quickly. So where do you meet? You meet in homes. So here we've got, what, about 50 people here tonight? And we're spread out. Um, anybody got a room this size? Can fit the 50, 60 people? I won't ask you, just as a, almost as a rhetorical question. I mean, I, I doubt if any of us have this. There were some middle-class people who did have a room this size. Priscilla and Aquila probably had a room this size. They owned three homes, e easily three homes, one in Corinth, one in Rome, one in Ephesus. It doesn't appear to me they sell them when they move to the, they're found in another city. They had a church in their house, which meant that they could, they had a room in their house that they could seat at least 50 people, maybe 60. John Mark, very wealthy background, because his house is probably the house where they have the Last Supper, and then on the day of Pentecost, 120 people. I don't think we could get 120 people in this room comfortably. So how big was that room? It was an upper room? It's big. There's wealth there. And in fact, that's confirmed by uh, Acts chapter 12, when Peter gets out of prison and he comes to the gate, and it's clear from the description that there's a garden between the house and the gate, but only 2% of Roman homes had gardens. Very wealthy. So very important to the Christian mission with the middle class. And uh, I think sometimes we take that verse in 1 Corinthians, not many mighty, not many wealthy, not many noble, uh, too literally. Uh, I think one of the things that Paul is looking for as he is involved in mission, we'll talk about this next week, is he wants to see somebody converted from the middle class so that they can host the church. That's broadly speaking, the social world, a lot of poor, middle class, very small, the 2% running the empire. Um, <clears throat> how did those poor who weren't slaves get by? There is no, there's no welfare. There's no pensions. There's no banks. The way you got by, and this is very, very important, is that the poor would have a patron in the middle class and maybe the upper class. They would have a relationship. We've forgotten about these sorts of things. These, are, these sorts of things were very prominent all the way down to probably the 17th century. The development of the modern world breaks all this. So let's say um, <clears throat> my patron is my uh, brother-in-law, Graham. That means every morning, well, he's not my brother-in-law in this scenario. I'm just saying. You know, Graham's my patron. So every morning, every morning, literally, I have to go and say hello to him. 
And he'd have a little room, maybe the size of where these chairs are, to here, on which there was a couch. And this is known as the salutatio, the salutation. And I'd come, Wale, hello. And we'd exchange a few words, you know, how are you today, and whatever. And there might be 50 men like me. Our families are clients of this man. And once we've done the salutatio, so you do, let's say, a minute. That's an hour. So it's an hour of everybody's time. Uh, we all go stand out in the main atrium of the house, which is kind of the central courtyard. Anybody here seen the old uh, Ben-Hur with Charlton Heston? You know the one? Uh, when he's ben Judah, Judah Ben-Hur, he's got a huge home, a big courtyard. That's what I'm envisaging, although that's probably bigger than I'm the, the typical Roman uh, middle class, uh, etc. And we'd all go stand out there, and after all the salutatio's done, he will give you instructions for the day. I need a wall built. You know, uh, I'm on 25 of you, go back there and uh, work on the wall. So you might have had all kinds of plans, right? Uh, Nancy's Graham's wife, and maybe they had a picnic plan down on the River Tiber. Well, that goes out the window. Graham's, well, no, you're the... <laughs> You're the patron, I'm the client. Okay, my wife and I, Alice and I, have got a picnic planned. And she's sitting at home waiting for me to get home for the salutatio. And I arrive about four o'clock in the afternoon because I've been working on this guy's wall. And, or maybe he wants to go downtown Rome or downtown whatever city, and he wants to look impressive. Well, you bring all your clients behind you. It's like when you have a, a, a kind of a, a, a dignitary drives up to an event in one of these big black limos, right? These stretch limos, and there's three or four of them behind him. No idea who's in them. <laughs> Maybe they're security agents or whatever. And man, you're, wow. You know, it looks impressive. Well, the Roman equivalent of that is all these clients going down to the forum, the Agora, and he does his business. Maybe he's in the Roman Senate all day. What do you do? You hang around. And, yeah, maybe if we were going on our picnic, it's a bummer in that regard. But I get to hang around downtown Rome and, you know, go to a restaurant. And if you want to get a feel for this, this is very interesting. Go downtown Jackson Square to the food court. And uh, you've got all these Portuguese and Italian men. No women to be seen at all. And it's amazing. It's like 2,000 years, you know. Now, they're no longer patron-client relationships, but... There's this kind of inbuilt culture. Now, how does it work the other way? Well, I, 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 Alice and I decide we're going to open a bakery. No banks, can't borrow money from a bank. Well, my, my patron, Graham, go to Graham and suggest the idea, draw maybe uh, interest rates, I'll pay him back so much on such and such occasion. Uh, so the patron then is going to fund my business endeavors. Or let's see somebody's ill in the family. Well, the patron normally has a doctor in the house. He's usually a slave. So uh, there's no hospitals, by the way, in this world. Can you imagine that? How do you, how do you get by with no hospitals? Well, the patron always has a doctor. And so you ask, please send the doctor. Uh, the only other alternative is, is trying to fight it out with whatever physical problem or uh, disease you've got, or resort to what we might just call, call today uh, the occult, where you bring in a, a witch doctor 
He's technically known as a Hataspex, and he'll do potions and uh, call upon the gods. And uh, Most Romans who uh, had the wherewithal would ask for the doctor. Now, he might do stupid potions too. I mean, if you read some of the Roman po- uh, uh, remedies for diseases, or you read their recipes for, for meals, uh, it kind of gives you pause to think, how do, you, how do these guys ever build an empire, and how do they ever survive? Um, Years ago, when my kids were little, I used to do history camp in the, in the summers. And one year we did Roman history camp, and Allison's out of work, so I can do this. So we're going to have a Roman meal. And I consult. We, there is a recipe book from Rome, and it didn't go down as a success, I can tell you. <laughs> um, now, it wasn't, it wasn't fried dormice. They, they, they had one delicacy where they'd have little mice that they would raise and you stuff them, obviously they're dead, and you stuff them with stuff and drop them in boiling uh, oil. And, and you fry them at such a temperature you can just pop them in your mouth, <laughs> and the bones are friable. That, that apparently was a delicacy. <laughs> I did not try that on my children. So that's not what they're remembering, but whatever I did try, they, they don't remember well. Um, it's also a man's world. Um, now, you, this needs to be taken with, with again, a degree of, of, a degree of complexity. If, if you're in the Greek world and the Greek cities, uh, the men are very much a, the dominant figures in society. Uh, so a, a respectable Greek woman would never eat a meal with anybody but her husband, her son, her father, or a male relative. Never, ever with a man who is not her relative. Um, Roman women would, would sometimes do that. And uh, there's a great uh, story by a Roman, uh, his, uh, Roman uh, storyteller named Plutarch. And he's Greek. And he's telling the story. He's making fun of the Romans. And he said, I knew once a man who <clears throat> was in the market, the Agora, and he saw a young Greek woman, and he thought he'd like to get to know her. So he went to her father and suggested to the father, um, you know, I saw your daughter uh, in the market, and she would always, always respectful Greek women would always wear veils. And uh, so he's not going to be able to see her face completely, but whatever he saw, he liked. So I'd like to, I'd like to get to know your daughter. Do you think you could have a ra- arrange a dinner with her? And uh, the only women who ever ate a, ma- a meal with a male who was not their relative, were courtesans and prostitutes. So the Roman is thinking, this is the normal way we, we, we get to know women not part of our family. The Greek father's hearing, I, thought, I saw your daughter in the marketplace. She looked like a prostitute to me. Do you think I could get to know her? And Plutarch, Plutarch's killing himself laughing with the end of the story. He said, those stupid Romans, don't they know anything about culture and custom? And what you've got there is a clash of cultures. And, uh, but it does, it does typify the way Greeks controlled women, very much so. Roman women were a lot freer. Egyptian women, even freer. Egyptian women, it was an Egyptian woman around the country, right? Cleopatra. Scared the Romans silly. And she's actually Cleopatra the seventh. There have been seven Cleopatras. And uh, the Romans would never have had any of that. Of course, a number of the Roman women, the empresses, were very strong women. So Nero's mother, Agrippina, 
uh, when she bumped off her husband, <laughs> Claudius. Uh, so Caligula, remember Caligula, four years, the Roman, the Roman uh, guard uh, bumped him off because he made his horse a senator, whatever. So they found his uncle hiding behind a curtain. You're the next emperor, Claudius. And he actually wasn't a bad emperor. Uh, it was under Claudius that Roman, Rome invaded Britain. And Claudius is mentioned in the book of Acts, if you recall, uh, when Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome, uh, Acts 18. Well, Claudius was married to his second wife, Agrippina, the mother of Nero. And um, <clears throat> when she found out Claudius hadn't included her son, in fact, he hadn't made his son the heir, she poisoned him with mushrooms. He loved mushrooms, and she just slipped a few poisonous ones in, did her husband in. And she basically ran the empire for seven years. Uh, uh, Nero's favorite, he was basically, I, I tell students, he was into NASCAR racing and Hollywood. Uh, he loved acting, and um, he loved chariot racing. And he spent the first six years of his reign literally going around theaters, uh, racing chariots in the amphitheater. Finally, after six years, he was bored. I'm relying here upon Roman historians. He was bored, and he told his mom, <clears throat> I think I'd like to be, I, I'm the emperor, right? Yeah, you're the emperor. I think I'd really like to run the, the empire. No, son, you do not want to run the empire. It's in good hands. And their quarrel lasted uh, quite a while until Nero decided to resolve the quarrel by killing his mother, which he did. I mean, it's brutal. Uh, Nero's just a brutal man, too. But <clears throat> it's the, the idea of a woman ruling, like the Egyptian had, very foreign to the Romans, even more foreign to the Greeks. And where do the Jews fall in this? They're probably closer to the Greeks. And that's why when you, when you see Jesus talking to Martha and Mary and the way he treats the woman at the well, etc., this the, the respect that he shows to uh, women made in the image of God, it is absolutely revolutionary. Really, very revolutionary. This is, this is not the general kind of that world. Um, one last thing before we, I'll take some questions if you have them. I will, it's 8 o'clock or 5 to 8. Uh, religiously, uh, this is a polytheistic world. Uh, the Romans basically took over all the Greek gods. They added a few of their own. Uh, gods like Janus uh, or Janus, who's the god of the door. Uh, we remember him every year, right? In the month of January. Uh, January is the, the, the month of the god Janus. Uh, the Romans, when they would go out a door, would pray that Janus, who was in the door, would keep the house safe, bring them back safe. Uh, that's not a Greek god, but basically the Romans took over the Greek gods, gave them new, name, the, uh, new names, names like Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune, Pluto, they're all, they're all Greek gods renamed by the Romans. Uh, by the time you get to the period we're looking at, the growth of the church, most of those Greek and Roman gods are fading in the imagination of most people. And replacing them are new deities from the East, particularly in, uh, for women, the goddess Isis, an Egyptian goddess. Once the Romans had taken over Egypt, um, they kind of imported Isis, 
she was worshipped by a lot of women. Uh, she guaranteed safety in pregnancy. Um, if you had to go on the sea, Mediterranean, she would guarantee safety. It's very interesting, at least in the text we have, there's no indication she'd give you eternal life if you spent your life worshipping her, which is strikes me that that's a major issue as to why religion is important to deal with death. Um, the other favorite god was Mithra. I used to be thought that Mithra was a major, major uh, um, competitor to Christianity. Um, increasingly, most scholars now realize that Mithra was very popular in the Roman army, and the Roman soldiers would build little temples to Mithra, and because those, those temples were in forts built out of, out of uh, brick and masonry, they've survived. And uh, Mithra was probably not as prominent a god. He's a Persian god. Um, you entered Mithra, you entered the cult of Mithra by being baptized, uh, being baptized in blood. You would be in a pit, and they would bring a bull over the pit, slit its uh, jugular vein, and the blood would pour down on you. It, it didn't appeal to most women in the Roman Empire. didn't appeal to a lot of people, but the soldiers, it kind of, you know, it was just macho. And uh, Mithra was uh, very common in the Roman, at least in certain sectors of the Roman army. Um, one of the areas this is very, very significant uh, is, this is a Roman thing, not a Greek thing. The Romans were very big into tradition and almost ancestor worship, like certain Japanese uh, uh, historically. And uh, in the Roman, in Rome and among Romans themselves, worship would be devoted to the genius, that's the word, the genius of your household. That's the spirit that inhabits your family. And usually they'd, they'd have a little figurine. Um, I'm borrowing a Buddhist term here. They'd have it on a god shelf with maybe other little figurines. And a, a pious Roman father would lead his family every morning in the worship, maybe of some favorite deities like you know Venus or Jupiter, but particularly the genius of their family. Because the genius of their family was the spirit that indwelt, had indwelt your parents, your grandparents, indwelt you now, would indwell your children, your children's children, and would guarantee prosperity. The Romans would insist on worship to the genius of the emperor. That is, the spirit that indwells the emperor, that preserves the emperor, that makes sure the empire will be safe. Please note, from a Roman point of view, this is, we're not worshiping the emperor. Now, the emperor is not a god. They don't believe that. Except when he dies, then the Roman Senate would vote to see if the emperor had become a god. And that's the way they got back at some of the wackos. So Nero, when the vote came up, is Nero god? No, he's not a god. That's how they got back at bad emperors. But the Roman technically didn't believe the emperor was a god. In the Eastern Roman Empire, Greeks and Egyptians who were used to worshipping deified human beings probably confused the two. They probably thought the emperor was divine. Romans technically didn't. When Christians, though, were called upon to offer sacrifice to the genius of the emperor, and I'll show you some texts where there'll be Roman authorities will say, will you not offer a sacrifice to the genius of the emperor? While we pray for him, 
the the uh, the uh, the uh, preposition is important here. We pray for him. We will not pray to him. And because they recognize, okay, you're just, you're just you're just playing with words. It's idolatry. There is only one God worthy of our worship. The final area that I will mention, and then we'll have questions, uh, is that most Romans and Greeks, probably most of the people you meet in the uh, New Testament and in the early Christian world, had some involvement or contact with the occult. Uh, we've lived in we've lived in a world which has benefited enormously from Christianity. I'm not saying there haven't been demonic powers active, but uh, in the early church, one of the things that would accompany your baptism, you'd you'd be asked, "Do you believe on the Lord Jesus, uh, God the Father Almighty, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit?" There would always be a, this question: Do you renounce Satan and all his works? I've never heard that in any of our evangelical baptisms, except once about five years ago. I was in London, and uh, people I was with, we went to John Stott's old church, and Stott wasn't Stott had died by this point, and they were baptizing two Chinese believers. It was fabulous, except it wasn't by immersion, but it was by sprinkling. I'm, I'm kind of an old-time Baptist, but whatever. Uh, they asked them. I, I had never heard. The, Do you renounce Satan? and all his works. And that was a common question in the early church because most people had some contact with the occult. It's a sub-theme in the book of Acts. I won't show you, but there are encounters between the gospel and demonic powers. Simon Magus, uh, the Philippian woman who was indwelt. It says by a, um, I forget the exact words. In the Greek original, it says she was indwelt by the spirit of the python which is the god Apollo, whose cult was centered at Delphi. Um, Acts, 18, Acts 19, a uh, number of believers uh, had been into the occult. They brought all their books and burned them. Massive amount of money. And this is a theme, this is a theme you find running through the early church. We're not going to look at that, but just this, in this overview to give you. A, it, in other words, this is a world in which there is a lot very different from our world. <laughs> But having said that, these are human beings. There are men and women, uh, rich, poor, in between. They have hopes for their lives. They're afraid to die. They're looking for immortality, eternity. They're wrestling with all the things we wrestle with. And that's one of the reasons why we can study church history. It is a foreign world. There's much that's very different. But Essentially, there is this continuity, and therefore we can learn from Christians in this world how they dealt with many of the challenges. Uh, we may have to deal with some of them, like persecution, etc. Anyway, let me stop here. Uh, that's a very quick overview. As I said, I spent 36 hours going through that, but uh, it gives you a feel anyway for this, this world. Any questions before we, we conclude? And I'll try to conclude in about 8 to 10 minutes. You mentioned uh, a very multicultural world in in Rome, and obviously the Roman Empire rules this land. How do they um, interact with the? You can have your cult. Where's the dividing line between you can have your culture and your whatever? But here's the line where we now begin. Yeah, it's a very good question. 
I don't know whether the Romans thought this through, but by the time we get to our period, when the Romans conquered an area, uh, after the initial kind of conquest, they would execute numbers of the ruling class, take their children to Rome to Romanize them, enslave a portion of the population. One of the things that they did was they brought their gods. And they'd say, you know, these are the gods we worship, and we'd like you to, we'd like to give you a present of them, and we want to take your gods too. And so there would follow a process by which they'd introduce the deities that they worshipped in Rome. But in doing so, they had hit upon a strategy of Romanization. And then within a generation, the Greeks never did this. You could, live in, you could live in Athens for five generations and never be regarded as an Athenian. The Romans would give you Roman citizenship within one generation, 30 to 40 years. We're going to make you citizens. You got all the privileges of being a citizen, and you now have a vested interest in being a Roman. So when the Romans conquered the Gauls in France, and then the Celts in England, and Wales, and southern Scotland, uh, I mean, one of the areas of Romanization is the men, we're going to, you can no longer wear trousers, you can now wear the toga. I'm not sure if this was appealing, it wouldn't be appealing to me personally. Uh, I've got no idea how the Romans kept the toga on, whatever. Um, but that, the toga becomes a symbol of civilization. You're now civilized. You're now in with the Romans. And the Romans had this mythology, it's in Virgil's uh, Neod, that the gods had chosen the Romans to rule the world. It was an incredible burden. And the Romans wished they didn't have it, but they did. And it's, it's a myth, obviously. But you tell people this long enough, man, I wish I was born a Roman. Well, yeah, we conquered you. You got an opportunity. We'll make you Roman. You got to wear the toga. You got to speak Latin. You got to raise your children to speak Latin. You got to worship our gods. And so over a period of time, you get this process of Romanization. All of that is called Romanitas, being a Roman. Yeah. Yeah, mention some of it on the citizenship. Like we have Paul and Peter, we've climbed example Paul being a Roman. Uh, what, I guess you'd say civil rights, like you could be a poor person and a Roman, but you have more rights than, say, the Greek? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Especially in a Roman law. Yeah, in a Roman law court, you wanted to be a you wanted to be a citizen. If you weren't a citizen, they could do anything to you. How do you prove it, though? Oh, you you probably they almost definitely had certificates that they carried. Oh, okay. they they'd have a document that they carried that would yeah, indicate yeah, that they were a, yeah kind of an ID. Uh, there were documents we know that they carried. There were also lists. I don't know if there were lists of citizens. There were the Romans made lists of all kinds of people who joined clubs. For instance, if you were a baker, you would join the Guild of Bakers, and you'd be on a list. So your bakery was rec a recognized bakery in that town. So I'm pretty certain we have, um, when the Romans start to persecute the Christian church, uh, and they all do empire-wide persecution, uh, every person has to sacrifice to the gods, and you have to have a certificate to indicate you had. So you'd have to carry that. And um, that raises interesting problems when uh, your brother or your cousin is the person, he, let's say he's a pagan and he's, make, he's signing these certificates and you're a Christian. Mm -hmm. You can see what might happen. You might talk to your cousin, 
Do you think you could give me one of those? You haven't sacrificed to the gods, but you've got a certificate that says you have. And that'll, 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 that's a real problem for Cyprian. Is this the forerunner of 666? Um, kind of. Yeah, in some ways, maybe. Yeah, in some ways. But yeah, so, yeah, so I would think that, I mean, because I, I, Paul will claim he's a citizen. Well, how do they know that? So he must have had a document that he carried. And in fact, I've never looked at that, but I know that we have found in the Egyptian desert that we have found three or four of these documents that indicate I, uh, Asclepius, God, uh, priest of the god Apollo, saw Titus Junius sacrificing on such and such a day. And we've actually found these documents. So I would think reasoning from that that people would carry uh, uh, documentation that indicated citizenship. Just as we do, we carry right, driver's license, health cards. You think about the stuff we have to carry uh, to kind of navigate our world. So would the, would the Jews then have, the Jews wouldn't be comfortable? Nope. And the Romans made allowance for the Jews, and I'm, it's, I, I've never been able to figure out fully why the Romans made allowance for the Jews and they wouldn't for the Greek, uh, Jew, Christians. And I think it had to do with the, the Jews look like Jews. They dress like Jews. They ate Jewish food. The Christians, they might be your next door neighbor. And you never knew it. It's insidious, the way these Christians are sneaking into everybody's oh, home. So, so I, the, the Romans uh, allowed the Jews, okay, you don't have to sacrifice to the gods. But woe betide you if you were a Jew brought up into a Roman court and you didn't have Roman citizenship. And they could do anything to you. They could, they could torture you. And if you were capital punishment, they'd crucify you. Uh, a Roman citizen could never be crucified at least the first 200 years of the empire, and uh, capital punishment was decapitation. So that's why Peter, not simply by tradition, but our Lord tells us, right, in John 21, it sounds like he was going to be crucified, which by tradition he was. Uh, Paul was decapitated by tradition. And again, it's the distinction of... of uh, and again, I, you might think, well, yeah, <laughs> they're both horrible, uh, but uh, crucifixion could last three days, and the Romans liked it because this showed you this is what we do to people who are our enemies, and you be it's horrifying. Was there another question there? No, at the back. Uh, we're talking about a uh, hundred years to three hundred years after Christ, and during that period of time, what Christian literature can we look for? What? Sorry. What kind of uh, literature, Christian literature, we can look for. What kind of Christianity can we look for in this period? Oh, Christian literature. Oh, forgive me. Um, well, we've got, we've got lots of it. Uh, we've got apologies, defenses of the faith. Justin Martyr wrote the first apology, second apology. He wrote the dialogue with Trifo. I won't imagine you'll get all this. Uh, Athenagoras wrote a book called uh, uh, The Embassy. Theophilus wrote three books to a man called uh, Autolycus. Uh, Origen wrote, well, Origen wrote, he's an Alexandrian Christian. He wrote uh, against Celsus, uh, his apology. But then he also wrote commentaries on most of the New Testament, probably half of the Old Testament, as well as a variety of other treatises. And then he wrote a systematic theology called On First Principles. 
Uh, Irenaeus wrote a book uh, against heresies. Uh, we have a, a hymn book called Odes of Solomon. Uh, we have books by Tertullian, who wrote about 30 books. We got about 25 of them. Um, Cyprian, we've got all kinds of letters from him, about 200, 300. Um, Ignatius of Antioch wrote seven letters. Polycarp wrote one. You get the idea. There's a ton of Christian literature. Now, again, it's, it's coming from certain areas. Carthage, Alexandria, um, Antioch, Ephesus, Rome, large urban centers. So if you ask me, what did a Christian in the Nile Delta in a little village like Oxyrhynchus, what did they believe? Well, we, we don't have anything from them. Although there is, the reason I chose that is a huge garbage dump there uh, about the size of this room. It was discovered in around 1890 and scholars are still piece. It was, it was like a huge jigsaw puzzle because people had dumped texts in there, books, letters. They'd all got broken over the years and so scholars have been piecing them together. You imagine a jigsaw puzzle. This, yeah. <laughs> Alison loves jigsaw puzzles, but you imagine how many pieces you get in here. Anyway, it's, it's, it's a fascinating... And we do have, we do have, for instance, there's a, there's a letter of a wife and she's complaining about her husband who's a deacon in the church and he's beating her. And she's asking the bishop to do something about him. And she's, he's already kicked out their child, one of their children, and he's been hitting her. And she wants the bishop to do something. It's, again, it's, but generally speaking, we're, we're, we're as with the Roman elite, most of what we're hearing from the Christians are those men who can read and write who almost definitely come from the middle class and some of them from the upper class. Okay, um, next week then I'm going to look at Priscilla as a Roman Christian and so bring your Bibles. I'll go through the New Testament, what it says about her and she has a husband, Aquila. Both of them uh, Roman names. Priscilla is a very, very uh, common name and a very, actually a very a noble Roman family as we'll see. Let me close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this time and again for the privilege of thinking about the past. Uh, we thank you for these men and women who sought to live for you. And uh, we pray that we might follow in their footsteps, that we might be faithful in handing on the faith that we have received. May your peace be our portion this night and for eternity. For Christ's sake. Amen.